0: You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation Podcast, episode 79. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's episode of the show is about the history of a truly unique national conservation area here in Idaho. The Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area is located in southwestern Idaho and is home to the highest density of non colonial breeding raptors anywhere in North America. Mike Kokert has been working as a biologist in the area now known as the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, which I will refer to moving forward as just the Birds of Prey NCA, since the 1970s. At that time, the region had just recently been set aside as a natural area, and Mike was the very first biologist that the BLM hired to work in the area. He's been doing raptor surveys in this unique natural area ever since, and has also been involved in much of the politics that led to the area finally being set aside as a national conservation area. The story that Mike is about to share with us is both fascinating and complex. It is indicative in many ways of the politics involved in conserving large swaths of land here in the United States, but it is also unique in many ways. As Mike explains in this presentation, the Birds of Prey NCA is the only NCA whose boundaries were actually determined based upon the habitat requirements of the wildlife that use the area. It was Mike's research on prairie falcons that ultimately determined how far that boundary for this NCA would extend. What you're about to hear is a presentation that Mike gave to a group of BLM employees about the history of the Birds of Prey NCA from his perspective as a raptor biologist. I was invited and encouraged to record this presentation by a new nonprofit organization called the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership. And I should add here, full disclosure, that I am on the board of directors for this recently formed organization, which was created to provide critically important support for this NCA within Boise and the surrounding community here. Mike has played a central role in the creation of this new organization, and I'm excited to be able to share this presentation on the history of this truly unique NCA here on the podcast. Let's jump in.
1: First, I'd like to thank everybody for coming. What I'm going to do today, I'd like to just talk with you about the history of the NCA starting from the dawn of humanity, basically the late 60s, and bringing you up. We'll start at '68 and take you to about 2008. I'll touch on a little stuff that we're doing uh, in the recent time, but I'll spend most of the time talking about the history. And uh, the uh, the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area is a an international treasure, and it is its significance is that it contains the densest nesting aggregation of non-colonial raptors in North America and perhaps the world. And uh, the species that makes the area totally unique is the prairie falcon. We have in excess of 200 pairs of prairie falcons nesting in the canyon. An average uh, distance between nesting pairs of about 650 meters, and we've even had some pairs nesting as close as 30 meters. It is the densest population of prairie falcons that anybody's ever even heard of. And at one time, Mark Hilliard, who was the management biologist in the 70s, did a, a, a brief questionnaire. It was an extensive questionnaire, and the best that he could estimate that the NCA probably had about 5% of the total population of nesting prairie falcons in the world, given the fact that prairie falcons only nest in North America and Western North America. Conservation in what is now the NCA actually started about, in, in about 46 years ago, in 1970. And when the BLM recognized the significance of the area, however Morley nelson who 's pictured here, and this is a picture of Morley when I, the year I first met him the year I met, that was thousand nine hundred and seventy well Morley uh, recognized the significance of the area as early as one thousand nine hundred and forty eight when he first moved to Idaho. Morley was a Falconer and a cinematographer that uh, was quite impressive, and those that n- I worked with and and associated with Morley for some 30 years. And those that knew him knew how effective he was. Well, in 1969, the district manager here at the Boise District, uh, Ed Brooker, died while he was in office. And so the BLM was decided that it would be very appropriate... To dedicate an area in in, uh, Ed's memory. And much to Morley's uh, uh, input, they proposed to establish the uh, Snake River Birds of Prey natural area. (laughs) The proposed withdrawal was nothing but a narrow band of of, uh, river about a quarter to half a mile wide, extending about 33 miles. Now this was quite a gutsy move for the BLM because At that time, the BLM did not have an organic act. The BLM was not noted for establishing areas for uh, wildlife, let alone a bunch of sheep eaters and chicken hawks. So this was really quite a move on the BLM's part. And during that time, many friends stepped up to the plate to back the effort and to support the effort and uh, and there in excess of 200 letters that were sent in uh, support at the 1971 hearing. As a result of the support, the Birds of Snake River, Birds of Prey natural area was dedicated in August of 1971. As Morley would say, at that dedication, there was quite a collection of heroes, including Secretary of Interior C.B. Rogers Morton, uh, State Director Bert Silcock, Governor Cecil Andrus of Idaho, as well as the Assistant Secretary of Interior, Nat Reed. The official land order was signed in October of 1971. Well, in the spring of 1972, the BLM was being staunchly criticized for really not doing anything with the natural area. And uh, one of the main critics, oddly enough, was one of the supporters, the Golden Eagle Audubon. Uh, at that time, it was called the Golden Eagle Ottoman Chapter. And there was much discussion about annexing the natural area to the Deer Flat National Wildlife Refuge. And that discussion was, went all the way up to the Assistant Secretary's office. And I could just picture Assistant Secretary Nat Reed of uh, Fish and Wildlife and Parks and Jack Horton of land and water resources arm wrestling over this area. And one of the main criticisms was that there was not, the area did not have a biologist. Overnight there was a biologist. I got a phone call at 2 in the morning when I was down here banding eagles. i just finished my graduate work from the state biologist Hugh Harper and said, you want a job? I looked at the phone at 2 in the morning and go, what? He said, if you want a job, get down to the Boise district tomorrow morning. We're going to sign you up. And so overnight, they had a biologist. Well, one of my first actions in my new job was to inventory the natural area and to identify the basic requirements of the raptors. But one of the things that uh, we found, a couple things, was that the natural area... Protected only about one half of the unique raptor assemblage, and that, too, this quarter to half a mile belt from back from the river, did little in terms of protecting the foraging habitat. So, in 1973, we got a directive from the Washington office to identify the, uh, (coughs) excuse me, the uh, needs in terms of research and management in the area. And so we began a comprehensive research project to, with these following objectives, to describe the uniqueness of the area, to ascertain the spatial and habitat requirements of the major raptors. And the main thing, one of the main efforts was to determine the compatibility or the effects of agricultural development, and then to recommend a boundary based on the new findings. One of the things that was happening in those days was that the land deposition acts were in full speed. The Idaho Admissions Act, the Carry Act, and the Desert Land Entry Act. They had really these specialists coming out the ears in the Boise district in those days, trying to process all these land applications. We uh, implemented studies in essentially four different areas. As you can see here, looking at the, the raptors and uh, the prey. And one of the main things that we did, uh, the University of Idaho was uh, on the team that did the research, and they developed the first vegetation map for the, uh, what is now the... At that time, it was called the birds of prey study area, but it is now National Conservation Area. Okay, one of the things that we found early in the game, first of all, Because we were assessing the effects of agricultural development, the state director, Bill Matthews, did a very bold act. And what he did is, if you can see what we, uh, first of all, we established the birds of prey study area, with which is essentially the uh, brown area, not the real dark brown. The real dark brown is the natural area. In the brown area, we established the study area and Matthews issued a moratorium on any land deposition within that uh, study area, and that didn't go over too well with the uh, with the uh, with the users. In 1977, we found that the prairie falcons were foraging far beyond that five-mile boundary. So, in 1977, Andrews issued an order to the state director to expand the study area boundary to take in the or the buckskin colored area. In the 1970s, when we were initiated the, this study, the work in the birds of prey area was or in the NCA, not the NCA, but excuse me, the uh, natural area, was divided into two functions, management and research. And in 1975, BLM hired a management biologist to uh, start a manage- and develop a management program in, in the natural area itself. The research side, we had basically a research leader, a research, which was me, a research biologist, an analytical biologist, and uh, as you can see here, various individuals. And in 1977, Karen Steenhoff came as the analytical biologist, and she and I have been cohorts in crime for the last, good God, 30 Nine years. <laughs> that is scary. OK. It was during that time that the focus of management in the 1970s was basically on education and, and, uh, and public contact. However, the BLM also, uh, the management side, began to develop a program uh, in terms of the Fruginers-Hawk platforms in 1976. Uh, Mark Hilliard, who is the biologist in the uh, natural area, and uh, Rich Howard, who is with Fish and Wildlife Service, erected the fruginous hawk platforms, which are still around today. And Joe, you've been out looking at them, and they're doing well, the platforms and the burges. Okay, in terms of the research that we were doing in the area, and I want to bring this up because it has some bearing on the overall decision of establishing the boundary. Some of the significant results, we found that the prairie falcon was a dietary specialist focusing primarily on Paiute ground squirrels. We found that prairie falcon reproduction was strongly correlated to ground squirrel abundance. And we also found that the prairie falcons had large, widely overlapping ranges. Another thing that uh, we found was that the chronology of the ground squirrel and the prairie falcon were very closely tied, in that prairie falcons were hatching their young about the time the young ground squirrels were emerging. So you had that flush of food resources for the prairie falcons. We also noticed that the distribution of the dense population of of ground squirrels pretty much followed the distribution, or excuse me, the vice versa. The prairie falcon dense population pretty much follow the spatial distribution of the ground squirrels. You go, basically, if you go west of the NCA, you pretty much, you still have ground squirrels, but you run out of these, the dense population. You go over by Hammett, you're hard-pressed to find ground squirrels. Go down the Swan Falls, area, Swan Falls area, you run into a plethora of ground squirrels. We also, as I mentioned, found that the Prairie Falcons uh, had these large overlapping ranges expanding about 30 kilometers away from the canyon. Uh, we saw that most of the falcons headed north uh, in a perpendicular fashion from the river heading northeast. And this was basically because, at that time it was called Townsend's, but the Paiute Ground squirrels was found almost entirely on the north side of the river. On the south side of the river, you have a few isolated teams of a totally different subspecies of Paiute brown squirrel, the mollus subspecies. We also, at the time, when I first started, there were a few buildings as well over in the uh, Walder's Ferry area. So what the point I'm putting across here is that I'm presenting these findings because we used the home range data from the prairie falcons to establish the boundary of the... Uh, the biological boundary of the uh, proposed NCA. At the end of the research, we prepared a report package for the uh, Secretary of the Interior, and you can see that we had the scientific report and a whole myriad of other... Uh, There was an environmental impact statement. We even had a draft, and the proposed action was to establish the area as... A, a, a amendment to Title VI of the Federal Land and Policy Management Act to establish it as a national conservation area for this unique uh, unique raptor population. Cecil andrus probably championed this as much or more than a lot of other people. And he and the Idaho governor worked and took the biological boundary and tweaked it around to try to get it rid of to eliminate private lands, to eliminate areas of uh, conflict. And, but the thing that impressed Karen and I is that every step of the way, if he made a boundary change, he would, and, and at that time, the secretary was talking directly to the district manager. I've never seen that happen since. I remember one meeting I went to when I was back in Washington, D.C. The attendees of the meeting in the secretary's office was Andrus, Secretary Andrus, Frank Gregg, the director of the BLM, Dean Bibles, the district manager, and me. And that was it. That raised some eyebrows, but that's the way things were working in those days. And uh, there was a direct line of communication between Andrus and the district manager. And Andrus, every step of the way, wanted to make sure that he was not causing any problems with any kind of boundary modification. Was this all right biologically? And so, these were tumultuous times because the proposed action was to establish a national conservation area in an area that was highly sought for agricultural development, and that the findings of the research stated clearly that ag development was not compatible with the prairie falcons. It might have been compatible with other raptor species, but for prairie falcons it was not, and so therefore the, the, the uh, proposed legislation would not allow any kind of land deposition, obviously. So these were tumultuous times. There were two hearings held, and as you can see, we had a lot of supporters. We also had a lot of opponents as well, too. And some Let's put it this way. Karen and I attended the hearing in Boise, and let's put it this way. It was rather colorful, rather interesting. So the history buffs... We pretty well know what happened in 1980. Complete turnover of administration. And it was a more conservative administration than the previous one. So, therefore, what Andrus did in November of 1980, and I remember we were in early November, we got the order from Andrus to write the withdrawal report, and we had two weeks to do it. End of story. Two weeks. It was done. Andrus withdrew the area from the uh, Land Disposal Acts and the Hard Rock Mining Acts, or Act and uh, for 20 years under administrative withdrawal. And that was not received well by some of the Idaho delegation, as one could probably understand. And not well from the groups that wanted to Uh, developed the area, and so in 1981, the Sagebrush Rebellion uh, Incorporated uh, filed a lawsuit, and uh, it was, uh, And what was interesting is they did not attack any of the science science of establishing the boundary. They looked at procedure, and so in the district court, they ruled uh, in favor of the defendants, the BLM. It went to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and it was upheld uh, in the Ninth Circuit Court. And that basically was, like I said, they didn't attack the science. The withdrawal was based on sound science and the withdrawal was essentially left alone by James Watt, Anders's successor. Even though he probably would, would have liked to have revocated the order, uh, I think that he saw the light And this is all supposition, so uh, I could be wrong. But he probably saw that, you know, if he attacked this one that was based on some good research, he may want some others that he wants to run through with less information. So anyway, another event happened to facilitate the uh, stability of the withdrawal and to open the way for the legislation, and that was the Swan Falls Agreement. And this was a lawsuit that was filed that was basically say stating that Idaho power has to be guaranteed a minimum flow uh, across the Swan Falls Dam. And so agreement was reached in 1985, which established a minimum flow of 3,900 cubic feet per second at Swan Falls. I, I wouldn't know if Luca Brasi put a gun to my head whether they are upholding that but what it did, it was a death knell on any ag development in the Kuna Desert because that was a large reclamation withdrawal. And I remember, Mark Hilliard and I went out uh, and was uh, basically a lot of times we were collared to go out and give uh, tours for people that may not have been so favorable of the actions that we were doing. So anyway, we went out and We, this individual was the chief of the Boise staff of Senator McClure's office. And we were, Mark and I rolled up our sleeves. We had the map out there. We were ready to justify the Prairie Falcon foraging and all this other stuff. He looked at the map and he goes, there's no water. That was it. We, We were deflated. We were all ready to fight. There was no fight. There was no, and basically after the agreement, and, and I think some people knew something must have been in the making because it was it was over. So anyway, moving on. During the 80s, budgets weren't really huge. We were all making do with what we had. And so basically, what the uh, research end did was uh, partner with Idaho Power and Pacific uh, Power and Light, now called the Pacific Corp, to conduct research on the effects and the uh, benefits of transmission lines and uh, also uh, Idaho Power was interested in the effects of disturbance on the reconstruction of the spillway uh, at Swan Falls Dam. Bottom line was that we had uh, partners helping us in terms of the long-term monitoring. We were still able to continue the Prairie Falcon monitoring and the Golden Eagle monitoring. After the area was withdrawn, the BLM began managing the whole proposed NCA area. Uh, prior to that, the, the main focus was pretty much into the old natural area. Now they had a reason to expand out into the entire 600,000 acres of total landmass. The 1980s brought some conservation challenges to the proposed NCA. Between 1981 and 1986, an estimated 50% of the shrub habitat was lost within that narrow window of time. Prior to 1981, there were virtually no fires. The Bruno Resource Area called this area, the the Salt Desert Shrub Habitat Area in what is now the NCA, north of the river, they called it the uh, asbestos resource area. Never burned. Until September of 1981, a 30,000-acre fire occurred in the, the uh, salt desert shrub area. And then the rest is history. We had a, uh, anyway, to make a long story endless, we had five years of intensive fires. And then after that, from 1986 to basically '96, virtually no fires. We had a natural situation of a pre-burn burn and post-burn analysis that that we did on Golden Eagles. Also, at the same time, in the mid-80s, the Idaho National Guard was proposing to expand their mate's facility and uh, to develop more action and activities in the uh, orchard training area, or what's it now called, the OC? I, 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 I live in the past. It's OTA, as far as I'm concerned. So, in response to these concerns... We initiated another large-scale research effort that was funded by the Bureau of Land Management and the uh, National Guard Bureau, or basically the Idaho National Guard. It was on a landscape basis to determine the effects of habitat alteration on the raptors and their habitat. This research began in 1990. And we had people from the BLM, scientists from the BLM, which then subsequently was USGS. And we had, at one time during the field effort, up to 80 people in the field. Hard to believe. Uh, it was like a Victor Matura movie, a cast of thousands. There were people everywhere. But the, at the same time, the I- Idaho National Guard began their long-term LCT, LCTA, is that foot? Land condition Trend Analysis, LCTA work, which is still being continued today. And that's probably some of the best continuous data that's been collected because they just, the LCTH, you go out and collect and you keep collecting lynches and there's some good information there. So it took basically 13 years after Andrus' withdrawal for the time to be right to propose legislation. Prior to that, building on this was essentially a group of Bipartisan individuals, there was agency people, university people, stakeholders, landowners, uh, you name it, all gathered, meeting at least once a month, and uh, basically to discuss the proposed, or the possibility of legislation, and spearheading this effort was the uh, Peregrine Fund. Bill Burnham did a tremendous job on spearheading this effort. And so the time was right. And uh, the political climate was right. Democrat representative Larry LaRocco introduced a bill. And the bill, the Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, came to being in 1993. Once the legislation was passed, the uh, BLM began managing the NCA under the legislation. So by 1995, a manager was hired. John Sullivan was the first manager of the NCA. One of the first actions was to develop the management plan, and you can see that it was basically looking at conserving and enhancing the raptor populations, providing for the compatible uses, and to develop vegetation and habitat management enhancement practices. And this was a big thing. And actually starting as early as the 1980s, there was a young, budding range con. In the Bruno Resource area, I think you heard his name, Mike Pellet, and he started the initial efforts right after those major fires in the 1980s. During the you know the planning and implementation effort of the National Guard project, the research side went through some major changes. Originally, you know, we were the Birds of Prey Research Project, and that lasted from 1975 to 1990. Then the BLM expanded its effort to form the Raptor Research and Technical Assistance Center that was headed up by Butch Ollendorf starting in 1990, where not only did we focus our work in the, at that time, the soon-to-be NCA, but we were beginning to focus our work uh, BLM-wide. And what was interesting is that Karen and I went from the Division of Resources in the district to a, a subdivision or a, within the div, uh, re, uh, division of resources in the state office, to the Western Wildlife staff in the Washington office, and I never left my desk. So <laughs> I guess Wonders, and Wonders never, see, and then went to a different agency, as we can see, uh, in uh, 1993. As a result of uh, Secretary Babbitt's effort to centralize research within Interior, we got shipped to uh, the National Biological Service. And that's one thing. Karen and I have the dubious distinction of working for the shortest-lived agency in the Department of the Interior. (laughs) Three, it actually lasted three years. And so uh, you all pretty much know what happened there. But this would be October 1996. We then were shipped to USGS, and that was a result of political action because I've seen a secretary, uh, uh, a cabinet member, use his or her discretionary authority twice. And both times, all it did was torque off Congress. And so Congress, what they basically did, they told Babbitt, do whatever you want within the agency, within your uh, discretionary authority. However, we fund the agency. And so they had him. And so basically the, the House-Senate compromise was to cut our budget 16% and send us to USGS. And what was interesting, and I, I'm digressing here, but it makes sense. It, when we first went, I looked at it from a resource point of view, and it didn't make sense. After being with USGS, I see it from the paradigm, the service agency, the research arm, and that, somebody in Congress was thinking which there are some people, they would look in awe. So basically, in 1996, we, we've, the uh, research report for the guard project came out, and uh, some of the major findings was that ecological changes were likely to, con- and conditions were likely to continue. The, the things had gotten in motion. There's a, uh, fires, climate change, more humans, everything else like that. But anyway, the, the bottom line that there were some recommendations in terms of conserving the existing ha- uh, vegetation, trying to reverse the trend of exotic plants, which is, some people would say, well, that's a no-brainer, but, uh, and to minimize, uh, uh, to rehabilitate areas and to minimize disturbance. And there's been a lot of action going on on that since the uh, RMP came out. In 1999, we had a restoration workshop, and the restoration workshop, recommended restoration at the landscape scale. The whole report provides a myriad of of recommendations for restoration, and they recommended approaches for assessing success at both the landscape and uh, site-specific scale. In uh, June of 2008, we had a uh, monitoring workshop. This was when uh, 30 individuals from, or as Morley Nelson would call them, heroes from all over the country, came to Boise to discuss basically raptor monitoring in the NCA. And they prioritized the raptor species, as you can see here, golden eagles, prairie falcons, ferruginous hawks, and burrowing owls. Uh, they recommended the monitoring designs and proposed how raptor monitoring can be used to evaluate projects, vegetation treatment projects. And it all depends on scale, because they also talked about prey, and that at the fine scale, if you're working on the site-specific, you may have a raptor zoom by. So basically, you're going to have to go one trophic level down and go and look at the prey. Or maybe you're even tighter than that. You look at the vegetation. But what they were emphasizing is look at scale. Because if you have uh, many projects going on in, the, in, in a large landscape effort, and doing nothing is also affecting the real estate. Then you start looking at the raptors and looking at it at a landscape scale. And if there's one thing that I could recommend if we had to do it over again, would be looking at the raptors from a landscape standpoint. Because they're the barometer. That's the reason this area was established. And the species, the most important species in the area, the prairie falcon, was periodically monitored until 2003. And there hasn't been any work done since. And that may be something we want to revisit and look at. I think there's people that would like to do it. The downside, it's pricey. Golden Eagle monitoring is less pricey. Matter of fact, uh, if we have time, I can show you what, you know how the Golden Eagle work has progressed in the NCA. And there's, there was a time it was done in almost entirely by volunteers. So basically, I would like to give you this take-home message. The NCA is one of the few wildlife preserves where the actual the boundary was based on the spatial requirements of the inhabitants. I think a prime example is the, 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 the parks in the Serengeti Plains. They only encompass parts of the range of the nomadic herds of ungulates. They don't cover the whole area. This area was established by uh, looking at the spatial requirements of the raptors. Another thing is that there was a long-term close working relationship among research researchers, managers, stakeholders, politicians to really solve the problem over time. As you can see, I've given a lot of uh, tables that showed the various groups that came to BLM's support, assistance. So there's been a lot of uh, individuals working together. And I think the Effort in terms of establishing the, the legislation was incredible. Karen and I you know, witnessed that for a good 10 years. They were just constantly meeting, hammering out things, and then working out the, the actual wording of the legislation. That's a lot of work. So anyway, this year marks the 50th anniversary of initiating surveys, Raptor surveys in, in what is now the NCA. This was first conducted as, uh, by Gary Hickman in 1966. Was the first field season, and he was basically with the, at that time the Bureau of Sport Fisheries and Wildlife. He surveyed the Snake River all the way from Twin Falls, Clear to uh, Malheur. Uh, as you can see, we've had various entities involved, and at one time, particularly they, the, the period between 19. 19- uh, or between 2010 and 2013, we were pretty much relying on a volunteer effort. Uh, we had a few. Uh, the, I got to say this. The BLM ponied up every year to help us with rigs and whatever. But uh, it was Karen myself in those years. Now it's turning around. We've got the USGS. Uh, uh, well, we got Boise State is getting actively involved. And the Fish and Wildlife Service sent money to Julie Heath, and they're hiring a research associate to uh, work on the golden eagle monitoring. But we're getting more people coming into the fold now, which which is good. And it's enlightening. Here's some of the stuff that we've done is that, in terms of golden, I talked about prairie falcons and ground squirrels. We got golden eagles and jackrabbits. And a lot of the shrub restoration work is precipitated on the relationship between jackrabbits and golden eagles and the the functional and numeric responses that we have there. Now, one of the things that uh, puzzled me for a long time is that theoretically, we should have had some of these territories go out of existence, but yet they were still producing kids. Most trashed out areas I ever looked at. Well, Julie Heath and I initiated uh, the dietary change study in 2014, my regal eagles are eating coots. They have no pride. But I think they're like the rest of us. They're trying to make a living. So remember I was talking to you about that natural pre-burn and post-burn Experimental design, it just happened by nature. Here's one of the things we found, is that when right after the fires, and I think you'll probably see this in, in Owyhee County, they just tank. They just totally tank. They can't handle it. But somehow they start adapting and being able to take other prey. And as you can see, uh, tend to uh, about 10 years after the fires, they were pretty much back up to their pre-burn levels. Oh, one last thing, the prairie falcons. Okay, they're migratory. I, you know, one of the things we found is that they took they leave the area and go north, east, pretty much following the various species of ground squirrels. They're virtually gone, and uh, for in second week of July, they move up. They're up into the higher elevations, feeding, and we're assuming feeding on climbing ground squirrels. End up over in eastern Idaho, feeding on Uinta ground squirrels, and then ending up summering in the uh, southern prairie provinces and uh, western Montana, feeding primarily on Richardson's. I would assume the Richardson's stay up later. Then we find that they rain down half of the pop of the birds instrumented. I shouldn't say population, but half of the birds instrumented. Some wintered in the Southern Great Plains, the other half came back to the NCA or Southwest Idaho. Anyway, I I just threw these in just as a, that was an addition to the talk. It's time that we need to to get out of here.
0: All right, that was our conversation with biologist and researcher, Mike Cochard. What a fascinating perspective Mike has on the creation of this unique national conservation area. I love how Mike integrates the biological research with the politics that were involved and explains how they affected one another. It really shows how much effort from a wide variety of individuals is needed to create a natural area like this. And it's also really interesting to learn how these political processes have changed over time. So if you want to learn more about the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area or about this new group that is working to provide support for the Birds of Prey NCA, the Birds of Prey NCA partnership, you can head on over to the show notes page for this episode, which you will find at wildlandsinc.org EOC79. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors.